This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. By hearing his word, if you can remain standing, if if you're able and open your Bibles this morning, not to 1 Peter, but to Hebrews chapter 10, if you have a copy of God's Word. If you care to use one of the, the Bibles we provide, you can find that on page uh, 1006, Hebrews chapter 10. I know we returned to 1 Peter last week, and it's only been one week, and now we're going in a different direction, but I kind of alluded to it last week when I mentioned that we wanted to at least share some things with you about our time away as the elders uh, regarding our prayers and, and plans. And so we'll be doing that over the next few weeks. And part of the framework that I'll be using is looking at our, uh, our purpose statement from our church and then sharing some thoughts with you. So this morning, uh, we're looking at Hebrews 10 and 12 as, as just a... Uh, uh, a, a few texts to frame our time together. So this won't be a formal exposition of these verses. But let's hear the word of the Lord. Hebrews 10. <clears throat> and I'll begin reading in verse 23. You should know or remember that this book was written to uh, a mix of Christians and others who were struggling with remaining true to the faith, wavering. And he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, and not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now if you turn over to Hebrews 12, just a little bit away. There in verse 28, 29, he says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless the reading and hearing of it to your heart. Lord, please uh, minister to each of us who finds ourselves here today. You have brought us here in your providence, your mercy and kindness. You know our hearts. May your spirit cause the truth, Lord, to bear fruit in our lives and our souls, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we've mentioned uh, before that our church is at a challenging and exciting point in its 28-year history. Uh, most of you probably know that the last two years we have seen the departure of many families uh, that were leaving the state of California, and <clears throat> this included several ministry leaders and some long-standing uh, families that uh, served us here faithfully for for many years, and most of you are aware that Pastor Chris and Christine, they'll be moving as well at a different stage of life for them, uh, moving this summer. So the challenging part is obvious. What's the exciting part? <laughs> this is the exciting part, and I mean this sincerely. Being able to experience how our Lord, the Lord of His church, lovingly and faithfully cares for us and continues to develop this church and this next generation of servant leaders, you see. He is the good shepherd. Scripture tells us Christ is the chief shepherd and he doesn't make any mistakes. And in fact, we've been talking about being prepared to pass the baton from one generation to the next for longer than the last two years. You know, this has been an ongoing prayerful discussion because it's being responsible. We need to think ahead and prepare ahead. And, and last summer, if you were here, we were blessed to, to see how Christ has gifted several of our younger men with the gifts of teaching and preaching. That's exciting. 
And so this, along with seeing how you will rise to the occasion. Yes, how you <laughs> will rise to the occasion. That's also the exciting part, seeing how the Lord is going to use you. And I'm, I'm planning to be a part of it, and I'm glad to be a part of it and to see God at work yet again in our history. So, so in light of where we are in this journey together, let me tell you that this year's elders or pastors uh, planning and prayer retreat took on a particular uh, focus and intensity of energy in light of everything that's happening. And so your four elders, your four current pastors, along with the four elders in training, uh, met over that weekend, two weekends ago, uh, to pray extensively. We prayed for every member of the church going right on down through the roster and every family of the church, individually, personally, and and then we uh, reviewed the history of our mission partners for the elders in training. How is it that we came to be working together? Who are they? What do they need? And we prayed for each mission partner all across the globe. All this took several hours. And then, and then we reflected upon Paul's philosophy of ministry, the Apostle Paul, and from the book of Colossians and from other parts of Scripture. And then we, we reviewed our, our purpose statement uh, as a church to remind ourselves, well, what are we called to be and to do? And, and, and then our core values, how are we to do these things? Love and truth and, and so forth. And then after all that, which is, took more than a day, and uh, we then finally entered the uh, diagnosis phase of reflecting on, well, where are we as a church then? Uh, what, what, what needs uh, more attention? And we identified areas of concern given our uh, current circumstances. And then we began to prayerfully formulate initiatives. In other words, uh, some objectives as to, well, what can we do about wh where we're at as a church? And then, of course, that will lead eventually to specific action plans. And some of that we got done, and there's still a lot more to do. And so I'm here... Uh, to share with you some of the results of those things. Uh, my, it's my privilege to review with you over a, uh, three sermons, which will take four weeks, because next week I won't be here, Pedro will be preaching, uh, the objectives of the church from our purpose statement. <clears throat> and I do it to stimulate your passion, your joy, and to urge uh, a greater participation in what we're called to be and to do and also to invite your prayers for us because there's still so much more to reflect on and plan and the summer schedule comes upon us within five weeks that'll happen real fast on uh, the all church retreat etc and then there's the fall and that will require more changes as well so challenging times yes but exciting times we get to watch god and we get to see how he does what he does it's always a blessing, and that's how this church began with the Lord bringing key people and lifting up individuals and giving burdens to people at the right time, at the right moment for the sake of this church so, and His glory. So I'm calling the series Revisiting Our Purpose Statement because we're not redoing it. <laughs> it's not reforming it completely. We, we are convinced that the, that the core biblical principles of what a church should be are already in place, but uh, times like this, we need to revisit it. Uh, and so I'm revisiting it to reinforce existing commitments, but also to, to encourage and prod uh, greater commitments and, uh, and participation. So what is our church's purpose statement? First, let me say that you can be a healthy, godly, biblical church and not have a purpose statement. That's fine. Uh, that's not required of us, so to speak. We don't need a slogan to be biblical, but we, like other churches, have one because it's helpful to just see it all crystallized before you and have a way of just reminding yourselves and new members that come to our church what is church about, you see. So what is our purpose statement? This is the way we sum up what the New Testament says the church should be doing. Our personal statement says, we exist to magnify the glory of God through Jesus Christ in all things by three main objectives, by responding to his grace in worship, by applying his grace in discipleship, and extending his grace in mission. 
worship, discipling, making disciples, and mission. Taking the good news where it needs to be taken. And so my focus this morning is on that first uh, objective, right? Responding to His grace in worship. And I'm mostly focusing on corporate worship. Worship is more than what we do in this hour and a half. But I'm focusing on the gathered worship. And you might be surprised to learn, if you hadn't learned this already, that the New Testament says little directly about the outward forms and the order of events involved in what we do when we gather for what we call a worship service. The New Testament actually has very, very few specific instructions about that. And and why is that? It's because the arrival of the Messiah, the arrival of Jesus, if you remember in 1 Peter, brought tremendous transformation of the people of God. Uh, We went, the people of God, that is to say, went from the old covenant under Moses to the new covenant under Christ, went from being a people primarily of, of Jewish descent to a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, right? And so there was an end to the old covenant ways of doing things, which involved what? Priests and animal sacrifices and burnt offerings and going to the temple and and then later synagogue gatherings and so forth. All that came to an end when the Messiah came and and opened the gates to to God through faith, by grace through faith uh, in the gospel. And so now we're told that all of life is worship. That is, worship is not Sunday morning, hour and a half, right? In Romans 12, chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, that you present your bodies as, or your body as a living sacrifice. Not a dead one, like an animal for a moment, but as a living sacrifice. We live for him, holy and acceptable to God. That's right. It is holy and acceptable to God. Your life, why? Because of Christ and his righteousness, right? We sang about that. Which is, he says, your spiritual worship. Your worship, the whole of your life. You know, I remember Jesus' interaction with a woman at the well, and she was discussing about your people. The Jews say we should worship in Jerusalem, and we say we should worship here, you know, Mount Gerizim and so forth. And Jesus said, woman, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father, you see. Because the Father seeks worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. It's no longer by going to the temple and offering animal sacrifices. It's not about a certain building. or It's not bound to one cultural form either. Uh, it transcends all nations, people's tongues, and times, you see. You may go, if you had the blessing I have of traveling different parts of the world to see different congregations from different cultural backgrounds, you'll see there, there's a similarity to the elements of worship, but there's a dissimilarity into the order and how it's done and, and, and things of that nature. Uh, and that's the liberty we have in Christ Jesus. Yet, the New Testament does stress the importance, the reality, and the necessity of corporate gatherings. Though all of life is worship, it does stress the necessity of corporate worship. On the Lord's Day, as the New Testament calls it, Sunday for example, in 1 Corinthians 11 and 18 and verse 20, Paul talks about when the church comes together. When you come together, he says. And then in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, he speaks of the whole church gathering together. He's talking there about what we're doing here. And then you heard me read from Hebrews 12 uh, or 10 when I read there, not neglecting to meet, what? Together. Together as is the habit of some. So, listen, it's our conviction, this is our conviction that the New Testament speaks to the necessity and the importance of what we're doing here, the gathering of the church, and it notes the elements, 
the elements that can be included in our gathering, in other words, the what do we do, like prayer and the reading of scripture and the singing of songs and the preaching and teaching of God's words and the offering, Lord's Supper, and so forth, but it does not provide specific details or instructions as to all the, all the, all the, all the micro sort of details to organize and, and express these things. So what does the New Testament teach us then? How does it help us make decisions about how we do what we're supposed to be doing? It does so in principle. It gives us principles. And so I want to just read from our little pamphlet that we have uh, on how shall we worship God. There's four primary principles here. The first two I'm just reviewing. Uh, and the third and the fourth are the ones, especially the third one, is the one I want to expound and bring some of what we as the elders reflected on to bear. So let's just hear this. Um, uh, the, it reads like this. The Lord has given us several principles which serve as guidelines for the forms of the corporate worship of the new covenant people of God. These guidelines address the question of how. How? We're to sing, pray, preach, and so forth in a manner that's acceptable to the Lord. And here are the four main principles that we've gathered on this pamphlet. Our worship should involve God-centeredness, number one. It is in spirit and truth, number two. Number three, it is congregational, not just all of life and private. And number four, edifying to the saints. It should build up the people of God. Now, I'm going to read from the first one, God-centeredness. We place a high priority upon the vertical focus of our Lord's Day worship service. God-centeredness means that God is both the subject and object of our worship. He is the one we speak about and to whom we speak. <laughs> the service is not an attempt to market a message to consumers. It's a time when the people of God and their children meet to adore and praise their creator, and for those who have faith, right, redeemer through the various elements of the service. And so as the subject of our worship, we believe that God is a trinity of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who possesses a vast array of attributes. And because Jesus, the Son, is the revelation of those attributes, the only way to the Father, and the object of the Holy Spirit's glorification we seek to be particularly Christ-exalting in our God-centeredness. In other words, when we gather, one of the things that we need to keep in mind as to how we should do what we do, what our attitude should be, and why we make decisions, we need to remember that we, 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 ha we have a high view of God. This is all about God. It's about meeting Him. It's about speaking to Him and speaking about Him. It's about offering praises to Him. And because Jesus is the revelation of God and the way to God, the Father, we want to exalt Christ as the Spirit does Himself. So that's God-centeredness, right? We want to have a high view of God as the church gathers together. Now, that doesn't mean we're not sensitive to the human beings that are here and specific needs, and especially those of you who are newer to the church. But worship is really about what we are doing for Him, right? Secondly, our worship is to be in spirit and in truth, I'll read from there. It says, The worship of God is no longer confined to a specific location, Jerusalem. I mentioned that. Or outward ceremonies. We're talking about the Jewish ceremonies. In a broad sense, worship embraces all of life, lived out as a sacrifice to God. I mentioned that. Romans 12.1. Worship in spirit means that only those that have been born again by the Holy Spirit can truly enter into worship because it is not an external matter alone. I'll stop there for a moment. Not everyone interprets that, that passage that way. Worship in spirit, to some means you need to worship God from your spirit, from your inner person. We take it to mean worship in spirit that Jesus was saying. True worship is only possible uh, if you have the Holy Spirit. Anyone can sing a song, but only those who have the spirit 
can be worshiping God as they sing and receive the benefits of that as well. That is worship in the Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't worship God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It does involve uh, uh, the whole person, the emotion. I went on to say it's a genuine, heartfelt, spiritual event that not only involves the intellect, but also the emotions of the worshiper. Uh, Thus, worship emanates from the heart of a believer and is an expression of our love for God and full satisfaction with all that He is for us. Uh, Worship in truth, now going to the subject of truth, worship in truth means that our worship must be a response to true views of God uh, that are shaped, guided, and fueled by the word of God. In other words, this is God's self-revelation. If we worship him according to truth, then we'll worship him according to his word and what he says about himself and, uh, and about our lives and our worship and so forth. Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy, and emotion without truth produces an aimless emotionalism. Maybe you've heard before. It's truth and light, right? Uh, excuse me. Light and heat is what I meant to say. Light and heat. And in a you know, brainiac church like ours, uh, it's, it's helpful for me to once in a while say, hey, if you only knew how much I'm holding back when I'm worshiping God. <laughs> because it should touch our affections, right? It should involve the whole person on some level. So worship is to be what? God-centered. It's all about you, Jesus, we sang, right? Uh, And then it is to be done in spirit, by the Holy Spirit, and in truth as we approach God based on what he says about himself, not what we'd like to think about him or come up with things that we think he'd like. Um, Now, congregational and edifying to the saints, I'm going to spend most of the rest of our time on congregational bringing in some of the implications and some of our exhortations from our time away. Now, let me read first what it says here regarding congregational. By definition, worship is something believers do, not watch others do for them. Now, that was written years before COVID and streaming, okay? Long time ago, because that's also true in this room. It's not just, it's what you come to do and participate, not simply watch others do for you. Congregational worship, I go on, is a corporate event involving the entire assembly. For us, we have to divide us into two services because we do not fit in one. Now, we desire to foster a mindset. In other words, here's your outlook you should have. We desire to foster a mindset that anticipates participation versus a performance expectation. I'm going to return to that. The worshiper should be more concerned with how he or she is prepared and deepening in his or her worship than with how the service is making him or her feel. Now, while we have worship leaders and others serving on the platform, they are but servants providing guidance for the congregation's corporate worship. In other words, they're not performers. And when, and when, we, uh, when we clap our ha- hands, I hope your perspective is that we are praising God for his, for his character's goodness and what was said to us in that song. We're not applauding for uh, you know, a performance. If you keep that straight in your heart, that's absolutely fine. And there are times when those on the platform seek the response of individual congregants and so forth. So. Now, let me return, I want to return to that phrase, uh, a mindset that anticipates participation versus a performance expectation, because this point needs revisiting. And I, I want to focus on those two words, anticipates and participation. So worshiping God together involves what? You anticipating that you're coming to do that. <laughs> and that you're coming to do what? Participate in the worship of God, not view it. Not consume it, right? So let's take those two words apart. Anticipates or anticipations. Corporate worship, we have said, is a spiritual activity because it's done by people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And it involves what? Giving God uh, 
expressing to God our adoration, our praise from hearts of gratitude, as I read from Hebrews 12, for giving us a kingdom. He's given us a kingdom that cannot be shaken, you see. And so to do that, spiritual activity like that calls for spiritual preparation, right? Just like some physical activity calls for physical preparation. If you're going to go fight a fire, you're going to get dressed properly to do that. If you're going to a wedding, you're going to prepare and dress yourself properly for that. Whatever you are going to that is is going to call something from you, you prepare for it. Spiritual activity calls for spiritual preparation. And the goal would be what? The goal is to prepare your heart, to warm up that soul, warm up that heart, and to rid your mind and heart of distractions or defiling thoughts, things that have gotten in the way. Remind yourself whom you're coming to meet, (laughs) both with and to whom you're going to offer your praise, right? The audience of one, as it has been said, right? The The Lord Jesus. So recall then, beloved, to prepare yourself is recalling on one level that we are gathering to meet with the living God, And therefore, coming here to meet with the living God should look different than running in during the previews at a movie theater spilling your popcorn, right? (laughs) Uh, It's not, I want a good seat so I can hear everything and, and, you know, and get all my snacks with me. you, You are coming to offer praise to the living God. And so that's why I wanted to look at Hebrews 12. Let me go back to what he says there, Hebrews 12, but I want you to, to, uh, I'll put it back in its context, Okay. Remember, he's writing to a group of people that had among them Christians who were struggling to, to remain faithful. And they, were, they were being drawn to go back maybe to the temple worship of Israel. The temple was still standing. They made a confession of faith in Jesus, but the, some of them were wavering. And so he, he contrasts the worship of Uh, of the old covenant that took place through Moses, particularly the Mount Sinai event, he contrasts that with Christian worship in order to encourage them to take their commitment to worship seriously. So that's what this is about. Hear what he says in verse 28 when he says, therefore, let us be grateful, and then down below, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What do you mean, therefore? Because though we're not in the same place that Moses and and Israel was at Sinai, our God is still a consuming fire. (laughs) And there still should be some reverence and awe. We should not be flippant about our commitment to him and, and our coming here. Look what he says to them of above. In verse 21, he concludes what he said about what it was like to stand at that mountain when it shook and God's voice was heard. Indeed, verse 21, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now, here's the contrast. Here's here's Christian worship. But you, you Christians have come not to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are, what, already enrolled in heaven, all those saints he listed in chapter 11, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, our brothers and sisters who have died, our parents, our uh, our grandparents who have died in the faith but now have been made perfect, you see. And you haven't come to Moses, you've come to Jesus, <laughs> the, um, the better mediator, right? <laughs> because the covenant he mediates is the better covenant and to the sprinkling of his blood, you see. And so notice there that it says, not that you will one day come to this, He says, you have come. When we gather, beloved, the teaching of this passage, and it has been understood in the church, 
is that when we gather together, we gather with innumerable angels. We gather with the spirits of the righteous made perfect. We gather with the saints, with the new Jerusalem, that we're not alone. And there are times I've, I have just sat here, and as I'm singing, I'm imagining my dad. Not as a memory, but as a present, a present brother in Christ made perfect, worshiping with us, you see. And when we've gathered to worship, we've also gathered before the judge. The judge of all, he says. And to Jesus, his son, that better mediator. And so, he says, therefore, therefore, let's be grateful. <laughs> let's be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Oh, he shook Sinai, and one day, he quotes that, he's going to shake the whole earth, right? But his kingdom that he's given us cannot be shaken. It's permanent. It is everlasting. Let's be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus, in light of that, let us offer to God acceptable worship, right? With reverence and awe. Not the fear of Sinai, not the fear of being cut off and destroyed, but with that reverence and awe of the fact that we can approach the judge of the world, the judge of all. We stand in the presence of the one who has authority over heaven and hell, over eternal destinies, remembering the whole time that he is still a consuming fire, but we come with joy also. Why? Because we come to Jesus, the better mediator. <laughs> and so we keep that tension. We've talked about it before as what? Well, you pick your adjective. It's either joyful reverence or reverential joy, you know. But it's the combination of understanding that God hasn't changed. He's still worthy of our, our reverence and awe. Now, what's it mean? Anticipating that anticipating that's what's happening you're coming in here to, to participate in that you see so how do you anticipate that how do you how do you prepare for that it was our our deduction and our prayers over the over the weekend that we need to exhort you more about this well there's some practical things this is super practical here here's one way you can prepare for coming to meet the living god get some sleep you know, don't stay up till 2 a.m. playing videos or watching some movie. You know, get some sleep. We are to what? Serve the Lord, love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And for that, we need some sleep. So just do something as simple as that. And how about your thought life? Don't make the last thing you're thinking about when you go to bed some strange horror movie. You know, turn it off. <laughs> At some point, start reminding yourself, what? I'm going to meeting. <laughs> Tomorrow, I'm going to meet the king. So let's start getting our, our, my mind, our hearts tuned. That can start the night before. It should start the night before, right? Uh, my greatest struggles is when I'm not preaching, I'm traveling somewhere, and my whole rhythm of life is broken up. And I'm like some wacko walking around not knowing what to do, you know, especially if I don't know what the passage is for tomorrow. What's this guy going to talk about? And you, We help you with that. How do we do it? Well, here's three ways we do that. Here's some other things you could think about. One, on Fridays, uh, what do we do? We send out our weekly worship guide. It's an email, right? Mass email that goes to everyone. It's not just there to, to put the announcements in there. They're in there, but it, it does give you insights into where we're going to be on Sunday. What's the sermon text going to be? Here is a, uh, here's a song to sing, and here's a scripture passage to meditate on. It's all right there, you see. That could be the last thing you think about on Saturday night, you know. That won't take a whole lot of time. Another practical thing we do for you is uh, there is the sermon prayer group. I mention it usually at our members' meetings and 
once in a while I'll bring it up. What's the sermon prayer group? Well, in addition to the weekly worship email that goes out on Fridays, on Saturdays I send out a personal email to the people who are signed up for this, some 75 people right now or so. I send it out, and what does it have? It has an outline that has the Sunday morning outline. So you have more than the title. Now you kind of see where, where my mind is going, where the text is going, and you could think about that. And then it also includes five or six things that you could be praying about that come from the passage. So now this is more than general, right? This is very specific. And you could sign up for that. It's not cumbersome. You would get the email sometime on Saturday, and you just choose when you're going to meditate on those things and pray for that. You could do that by just telling the office you want to be on that list or telling me, okay? Then thirdly, here's another way you could prepare, and that is simply to pray Sunday mornings, right? Pray before you leave. Gather your thoughts. If everything's going crazy, and I know I was a dad, and now I'm a granddad, right? And I, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes getting out to go to church can be the most insane moment, you know, because one of you wants to be there on time, and the other one also wants to be there on time, but the reality is this kid just, you know, just did something, you know, and we got to clean it up. And then there's back and forth, and before you know it, everyone's uptight driving the church, right? So prepare your hearts. There's also what? There's this Sunday morning uh, prayer uh, meeting that happens at 8.15. It happens in the hospitality room. There's been a small faithful group of people there for years praying, and it's been our conviction now that we are going to add to them. Uh, some of those, who, whoever's leading platform is going to meet with them since they're going to be here early anyways, pray, and so forth. Um, you can... Be here and pray with them. Listen, prayer is, is not a perfunctory sort of duty, right? We need God. We need him to move. We need his spirit to do uh, anything. What did Paul say? I planted, Apollos watered, but God causes the growth. And he said, so then the one who plants and the one who waters, they're nothing, it's all about God who causes the growth. And what does the psalmist say? Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it, you know, apart from God. So prayer is not some perfunctory duty. We need prayer because we need God, you see, and so we need you to pray. Pray for me. Pray for us. Pray for the uh, worship leaders. Pray for the Sunday school teachers. Pray for yourself. Pray for the brothers and sisters. Pray for the visitors. Uh, all, all of that. So keep those things. These are, these are some very simple things. Listen, I know you prepare for important events in your life, right? If you have to give a presentation to someone and it was important to you, uh, you're not going to walk in late uh, chewing, uh, you know, uh, biting your, your popcorn and saying, where do I sit? What's going on? You're going to be ready. If you, you, you prepare, uh, not only when you give a presentation, you prepare when you're going to meet someone who is important to you or someone you love whom you haven't seen in some time. When you come here, you're meeting the one who laid down his life for you. You're coming to meet and sing to the one who took upon himself what you deserve, who expiated your, your sin, your guilt, satisfied God's justice on your behalf. That, I think that calls for a little meditation, you know, a little preparation. What am I, where am I going? What am I doing? So there's just some ideas, right? You take some time to remove what? Defiling thoughts from your mind, and, you know, things that have gotten in there, wrong attitudes. You may need to confess them. You don't need to solve conflicts. If you're going through something with someone in your family, you don't need to solve conflicts at that moment, but you probably at least admit them. When you come in here, guess who knows all about them? He does. So, I mean, you may be insincere with me, you know. Yeah, how's it going? Great! <laughs> if you only knew. But he, he isn't fooled, you see. And so for your worship to be genuine doesn't mean you're problem-free, conflict-free, sinless. It does mean you're sincere. And so you may, just, you may just look at each other and say, look, we're going to go worship the Lord. We'll get back to this, but let's just pray. <laughs> Lord, clear our minds, help our hearts, forgive us, minister to us, and boom.
you know, go. Prepare. Anticipate. Anticipate. So I'm still on what? Anticipation requires some preparation. And then what about the Lord's Supper? Well, that requires preparation, right? Anticipate meeting at the Lord's Supper. We, uh, you know, there are different traditions in terms of how the frequency of the Lord's Supper and some of the details of the manner in which the Lord's Supper is done. Um, uh, we uh, have the Lord's Supper every second Sunday of the month and every fifth Sunday of the month, which is once a quarter. So 16 times a year, we have formally planned to gather for the Lord's Supper. Sometimes we will also have the Lord's Supper at our all-church retreat and other circumstances, right? But So these 16 times a year, we plan for the Lord's Supper. It is a means of grace. And how do we prepare to meet with the Lord at the Lord's table? Well, Paul had a lot to say to that, to a church that had messed it all up. <laughs> And that's the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians. If you'd turn there, uh, if you want, we haven't turned there yet, but 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you'll find that on page 958 if you're using the, the Pew Bible. 1 Corinthians 11, you know, the only reason he goes into all this is because of, you know, the, all the sort of conflicts and problems they were having around the Lord's table. Now, I'm just going to read the <clears throat> this section here, and then I'm going to go back and put it into its context. Uh, we're used to verse 26 because it ends the, uh, the instructions for the Lord's Supper. Verse 26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, then we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. God disciplines His children so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Wow. <laughs> that whole paragraph has a solemn ring to it, doesn't it? You have death of the Lord. And then you have illness and death of some of you. and Wow, solemn. I don't have the time to expound it all. But I want to make some points today. First of all, so you don't go in the wrong direction, note that Paul does not encourage self-barring, barring yourself from the Lord's Supper. What's he say? Examine yourself, then eat and drink, you see. Examine yourself. Then eat and drink. He doesn't say, bar yourself, keep yourself. He says, think. Discern where you are with this before you move forward. Paul is not calling for worthy people. He is not barring unworthy people. Why? Because everyone is unworthy. He is talking about unworthy participation, not unworthy people. Huge difference. <laughs> All of us are counted worthy to be at the table by the sacrifice and righteousness of Christ. We are there because of his love and his purification of us through what he's done when we come by faith. But you can participate in this in an unworthy way. And so what, what's the worthy way? Let's put this positive side on it. If, if, you can be, if you can participate in an unworthy way, what is the worthy way? Well, most basically, first of all, and most important, with faith. <laughs> you must believe. You must believe what? You must believe that the sacrifice of Christ and his righteous life is the soul and completely sufficient means of your being accepted by God. 
Because that's what this celebrates. It is the, broken, it is the body and, and the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. So we come with faith. We come believing. And we come believing not only that his life and death and, and, and righteousness is, is sufficient, but we come believing what he tells us about the Lord's Supper. <laughs> believing what he says it is. And what did he say? It is. In, it's a commemoration. We declare his death. We do it in remembrance. But in chapter 10, he also said in verse 16, it's a participation in his body and blood. A communion. That's where the word communion comes from. The word is koinonia, fellowship. It's an intimate spiritual fellowship with the benefits of Christ's body and blood. And so, what's worthy participation? It's believing that this is what's happening here. I've come to meet with the Lord. His, his sufferings are sufficient. My sins are forgiven. And in this time together, I remember him, I commemorate him, and I am participating uh, in the benefits of his body and blood. It is a visual gospel that's going to give grace to me to move on with my life, to keep going forward. Faith. We participate believing the worthy manner, right? But also, there must be something else because he says there in verse 29, discerning the body. He says there are some of you who are participating in an unworthy manner. Why? Because you're not discerning the body. Well, what's that mean? <laughs> That's important. Well, the word, the verb there to discern uh, means to judge something by perceiving differences. When you discern something, right, you're, you're, you're judging something, saying I'm discerning that that's right or that's wrong or true or false or the best way and not the best way. So discerning, you, I think you understand what discerning is, but the key word then is the body. What does he mean by that? Well, there's, there's two primary ways that that's been understood by, you know, Bible-believing churches such as ours. There's other ways this is understood, but it's all over the map. We're talking about churches that have a high view of Scripture. Right? That there's two primary ways. Uh, one way is uh, the body is speaking about the, uh, the body of the, the, the bread in this way. Are, are you rightly discerning that the bread is the body of Christ? Because he said, this is my body. So do you have faith that that's true, that's happening here? That's one interpretation. Are you rightly discerning? Are you rightly judging that the bread is the body of Christ? You believe what he says. Or the other way is to understand that the body is speaking of the church, the congregation as the body of Christ. Are you rightly discerning? When you come to the Lord's Supper, are you rightly judging and understanding that the congregation that you're with is the body of Christ himself? Okay, so that has a different focus. You know what? Both are essential. <laughs> you can't say only one is required. Both are essential, but I think which one is he talking about in this verse at this point? I think he's talking about are you understanding that when you come to the Lord's table that the people you are with, they are the very body of Christ. And the reason I say that is all of this is correcting a problem. This whole context is dealing with an issue. So now we'll get to the issue. The issue was the Corinthians commingled the Lord's Supper with a feast, uh, the agape feast, a love feast. Nothing wrong with that. Hey, let's have a great feast together. And somewhere in that great feast or towards the end, wherever, we'll, we'll have the Lord's Supper. We'll break the bread we have for the feast and, and the cup. Let's, let's do that. Nothing against that per se. Uh, but they had made a mess of it. <laughs> They'd made a mess of it. Why? Because some were rich and others were poor. And the rich didn't want to share their food. So they just got on with things before the poor ever made it there. <laughs> and so look what he says in verse 20, 21. This is the problem. He says, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Verse 22, what? <laughs> you know what that means in the Greek? What? <laughs> That's exactly what he means. What are you thinking, he's saying? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? 
Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? (laughs) Or do you, here it is, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Wow. You're coming together to the Lord's Supper, which celebrates not only our unity with Christ, but our unity with one another. We break one bread. And in the middle of it, you humiliate people. You despise them because you go ahead and eat your food before they get there because you don't want them to, sh- to have what you have. He says, what are you thinking, he says. You're despising the body. Shall I commend you on this, he says. Rhetorically speaking, right? No. <laughs> There's nothing to recommend here, to commend, I mean. Then he gives them a very practical solution. The the spiritual one we understand is you need to think rightly about the body of Christ. But then we can see that this was the issue because he ends the whole section in verse 33 and 34 with some practical suggestions. He says, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. (laughs) Can you do that? (laughs) Could you just wait for the poor to arrive? Uh, Could you wait for each one? to make their way to this thing. And if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. (laughs) What's he saying? If you can't wait, scarf something down at home first then. (laughs) But don't come here and then eat ahead of everybody else and despise your brother and sister. In other words, what's the principle there? Take care of this ahead of time. Now, we don't have the same problem, I don't think. Uh, in terms of the meal and despising the body by not sharing food. And no one's getting full, food, uh, full on what we're going to share here in a moment. So what's our problem? There are other ways we despise the body. There's other ways that we uh, despise the body, the way we humiliate others. And we need to take care of that uh, at home, he says. See, deal with that ahead of time. If you know you're not at peace with someone, and now we're telling you this ahead of time, a week, right? Don't come and take the supper that celebrates not only our unity with Christ, but with one another. Don't come and take that pretending that everything's okay when you know it's not. That is not sincere, and it's despising. You're not discerning the body of Christ. If you keep on with this, God may discipline you. If you keep carrying on with this, you know, this sham that, oh, we're one, we're one, and we're one, and meanwhile you're gossiping about this person, or meanwhile you know you have a broken relationship. Now, the time we, sh- we ask you to meditate right before the supper, that little brief time, of, that's, that's not enough time to fix all that, right? That'd be like telling this Corinthian church is right before the supper, if you're hungry, run home and eat, then come back. No. It's not enough time. It's, it's a time for you to do what? It's a time for you to contemplate the solemnity of the fact that Christ gave his life for your sins, the good news of the fact that whatever you've done, whatever's happening, he has atoned for it. And it gives you a time to confess something you haven't addressed, gives you a moment to repent, and be genuine and sincere with the Lord, you see. You're not trying to become a worthy person. We're all unworthy, but we are received at his table through his grace. But we want to participate in a worthy manner, not an unworthy manner. So do you have faith that Jesus is the Son of God? That That he is who he says he is? That his death and resurrection was enough for you to be at peace with God and forgiven? And is that all you're trusting in? That's great. That's a, come to the table. You say, but I've sinned this week. Come to the table, but I've been gone. It's come to the table, but I, I feel a sense of shame. Come to the table. Come in faith. Are you rightly discerning the body to have value? Christ loves this body. He loves the church, Ephesians tells us, and gave himself for it. So if you're not at peace, take time ahead of time. And if at that moment you realize, I'm not, you know, then 
you speak to the Lord about it, and your conscience, you decide what you're going to do. So anticipation, right? It's best to think ahead and prepare. And then even when we come here, we give you those few moments to thank Him, to reflect. There is solemnity when you come into the supper. Why? Because we bring burdens. We know we've sinned. And we're about to be reminded it cost him his life, the wrath of God. So there is solemnity. But this is a celebration. So you may come in that way. You should leave joyful. You should leave with your hearts full of what? The assurance of your salvation. Because there's nothing you can do to atone for that shame you feel. But you come to him and receive his grace and his affirmation Here's my body. Here's my blood. I love you. I lay down my life for that sin. Be at peace. Be genuine. Talk to him. Leave joyful, celebrating and looking forward. We declare the Lord's death until he comes. So we're looking for his second coming now. So that's the anticipation. And what about the participation and the edifying? Well, this is going to be very brief here. Participation. Let me say this. I said this to the folks of the first hour. For too many people, for too many, the COVID restrictions that led to whatever happened and streaming and all that, you know what it did? For some, it turned worship into something to watch others do for them rather than something all believers participate in together. See? And that is unacceptable, right? Corporate worship is just that, corporate. (laughs) It's corporate worship. What did Paul say? When the whole church is gathered together. And so I would say that even for some of you in here, as well as those that may be watching right now away, that for some of you, there is a need to stress more consistency. The streaming's not there to be an option. You know, like, hey, this Sunday, what do you want to stream? You want to go. Stream, go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, you know. No, that's not the case. We have always streamed way before, uh, way before COVID. Why? Because there's people who, for legitimate health reasons, cannot be here. There are shut-ins. There are suffering people. There are people who get sick for a period of time. There's a lot of, of different sort of personal reasons that are legitimate. And so we always had it before, before COVID came. We just had to step it up a notch, you know, because <laughs> now almost everyone was away. Uh, so I need to remind you of that. Participation, right? This is not, that is not intended to be a substitute uh, for that. And so if you have been sort of justifying yourself or why you're not here often uh, and, and trying to, you know, explain it away in some way. No, 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 no. When the church gathers together, you see. And why is that also important? Because the last, the fourth, the fourth point in the brochure Worship is edifying. There's a, not only is it vertical, right? We adore God. We praise Him. It's all about Him. But in that process, there's a horizontal benefit, right? We are built up. We are built up by being together because here we hear the Word and here we minister to one another in various ways, you see. And so you need to be here and participate. And here's another reason. Edification is part of worship. And edification is a two-way street. In other words, you are edified not only when you receive God's grace through someone serving you, helping you, but you are built up when you serve others. (laughs) And you use God's grace in your life to minister to others. Why is that edifying to you? Because it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so that's edifying is the last point we want to make. And the word is... Is, is, is brought upon you with the effect and love of the Holy Spirit when you come here. You can have individual Bible study, right? You could study the Bible alone. Uh, but listen, and, and, and gathering is never meant or designed to replace any sort of personal devotions. We should all have personal time with the Lord and study, you see. But when you come here, this is the place where the word of God is preached and the spirit attends the preaching with his blessing, his power, in ways he, he, he doesn't uh, in isolation. Why? Because not only is the individual Christian the temple of the spirit, the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so you miss out on that. 
Uh, you miss out on that great blessing. And now here's another way it comes to you. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, speaking to the congregation. How does that come about? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. How? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, you see. That's another way, not just through the preaching of the word, but uh, that's another way that the word of God dwells in your heart and in the heart of this church uh, richly. How? Through the mutual edification of singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. Uh, you know, singing is not an embellishment to worship. Singing, we're told here in the New Testament, is an essential component, right? To edify one another with wisdom by singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs with one another. Yeah. You know, when Matt was praying, this is exactly what I was thinking. Some people walk through that door, and I remind myself this every week. This is not a seminary class. Someone is going to walk through that door lonely. Someone's going to walk through that door frustrated. Someone's going to walk through that door hurt. Someone's going to walk through that door wrestling with doubts. Someone's going to walk through that door, you see, with some burden. And I'm talking primarily here about saints, not, not those who have yet to come to faith. And it's not only the preaching of the word that may have an effect by the Spirit, but the fact that you're surrounded by people who are singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. <laughs> wise songs, truth in them, and it lifts your spirits, <laughs> and it ministers to you. It helps heal, you say. So this is the place where that happens, and you all need to be here. So, Well, in our gathering, a loose, a loose quote of somebody, we're not only doing something together, but we are becoming something together growing as the body and we are receiving together receiving from the grace of God corporate worship is essential and in this day and age it's essential on on other levels first of all being in worship services consistently right counteracts your self-centeredness it's not about me, me, me. It's not about my, my, my. My favorite song, my this, and my way. I've actually heard of people say, I like to listen. I stay home and I listen to the worship of this church and then I go watch your video to hear you preach, Tony. I, my, 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 I think. <laughs> I'll take 1 Corinthians 11. What? <laughs> Shall I commend you? <laughs> No. And so coming and gathering week in, week out works against, counteracts that self-centeredness of yours that wants it your way, when you want it, how you want it. You have who you have here. <laughs> and they're your brothers and sisters. Right? Flaws and all. But the Lord meets us here. And that'll keep pressing you away from your me, me, me kind of spirit. Um, God demands to be first in your life. There's no getting around that. And coming regularly reinforces that. Reinforces it. Some days you'll make a decision. You'll be deciding, you know. Hmm. Golf. Worship. He demands first place. And being consistent, again, strengthens that priority in your life. So you think about that. And families, parents, you should think about what an example it is to your children. Is it always eeny, meeny, miny, moe? Which way are we going? You know, fun or church or what? Well, you're setting, it. You're setting them on a path. At, that, at some point, it won't even be eeny, meeny, miny for them. It's, I learned from them it doesn't matter. So you think of that. And lastly, if you love Jesus, you love what Jesus loves. 
And I already told you, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, see? And so these are challenging times for us and exciting times for us. And the question is, how will you rise up? How will you be a part of it? Preparation, anticipation, participation, regularity, all those kinds of things. You, you think about those things. We're going to come to the Lord's table now, and before we're going to sing a song. And the song we're going to sing, we normally use it as a call to worship. Come to the fount of every blessing. That's because the last verse we'll sing has this verse. And see how many of you remember it with me. This verse goes like this. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave, the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. So make that your prayer as you're singing this song. Lord, meet with us, we pray as we respond now in, in, in worship. Touch our hearts and help us, God, to, to worship you with joyful, reverential hearts. And then help us to come and meet with you, Lord, as your guests at the table. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.